Our scripture passage today is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. That you would speak to us, you'd speak to us plainly, that you'd give us a spirit to understand it, and that you'd send us the power of the resurrection and the ongoing priestly work of your son Jesus to accomplish it. Father, we ask that you would do this in us this morning, this moment, and in the days ahead. Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a quick, a quick caveat here. I, um, or I guess uh, not a caveat, but a quick statement. This this, uh, I spent the first day and a half preparing a different sermon, uh, and as a lot of the other, the, uh, I think Russ and Jeff know, I uh, changed like midday Tuesday, and uh, I was woefully behind on my sermon prepping. I, I, I started preparing a sermon on understanding temptation. I was going to do a deep dive into temptation, and what does that mean, and how do we walk in in, in that. So it says Jesus, so coming from verse 15. So I, I, I might do something at another day because uh, <laughs> I have a lot of words written and I think it would be helpful. Uh, but the Lord was like, no, just go on the chapter five. So here we are with chapter five. But if you'd like to know more about temptation, um, maybe that'll come in the days ahead. Let's talk about a life firmly planted in the supremacy of Christ Jesus or Christ the Lord. You've seen that as as the subtitle in our series here. What does it mean for a tree to be firmly planted? Well, for multiple things, multiple descriptors of that, is that A, its roots go deep. I have this tree that from all visible observations seems to be quite immovable. You can walk down to the creek on my property and see this big sycamore that has two, I mean, you can't even begin to put your arms around it. And, and, and the, it comes up in two like big, huge trunks, and then the one is at this very acute angle headed towards the, and it's, it's I mean, again, you, you, could, you could probably crawl up it, but this huge tree that stands for years and years and years and seemingly immovable. It's well established. A tree that's firmly planted is well fed, clearly. A tree that's firmly planted is a canopy that spreads broadly. Many trees, their canopy spreads the, the diameter of their root system. A tree that's firmly planted has soil around it that is blessed by its stable roots and a soil that is blessed by its decaying leaves that fall once a year. A tree that's firmly planted has animals that enjoy its safety from raccoons to to woodpeckers and other tree-living animals and humans that are blessed by it in so many ways from heat to shade, from furniture to houses, from fruits to nuts, and so on. And even a tree that might get blown or bent by the wind in time stands up strong, that is healthy and firmly planted. A life firmly planted doesn't look much different. It has deep spiritual roots, deep physical and material roots as well. A godly legacy that outlives him or her through their offspring. It's immovable. 
well-established, fed well, deeply joyful, anointed with the oil of gladness, a life that is conquering and subduing, a life that is enjoying the lordship of Jesus. As we're going to talk today, a life that is perseverance-proof. Again, this life that is firmly planted provides stability for the lives of those around them. For example, a husband firmly planted in Christ provides a home that is safe for his family with structure, room to move, spiritual feasts every day, material opportunity to spread their wings, and a place his bride can step into all that God intends for her to be. A life firmly planted where each, of that member, each member of that household does the same for those under and around them as they are increasingly firmly planted in the supremacy of Christ. But a life that will be firmly planted only happens in the rich soil of Jesus Christ. And indeed, it will be firmly planted. And indeed, its wings will spread, its canopy will spread broadly, and its roots go Deeply, One commentator said this, the writer's whole approach of Hebrews seems to be this, if you only comprehend who Christ is and what he has done, this will make you uh, persevere in the faith against all difficulties. If we get Christ straight, he argues, everything else will come into focus and we will hold fast to the end. The main point of Hebrews is this priestly office of Christ, particularly. The primary purpose to which that priestly office is being applied in the book of Hebrews is perseverance. Christ's priestly office for the purpose of perseverance. That's the interaction that's happening. I want you to persevere. Here's why you should persevere, and here's how you should persevere. It's both the how and the why. So let me talk for just a moment about Pastor Jeff's awesome analogy or metaphor from Homeward Bound. Who all went out and has watched Homeward Bound since that sermon? Twice. Ben watched it twice. There we go. He has kids. Yes. We wear out movies too. Um, we, yes. Anyways. From Jeff's analogy, Sassy is yelling, right, as they come home, hope, 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 and Chance is sprinting across the finisher line. I, you can imagine Chance is kind of crazy. Shadow then eventually comes limping along, but he makes it. But let's talk about Shadow specifically for just a moment, because I'm afraid some of you might mistake the application of the metaphor. Shadow does not barely make it because he's lazy, selfish, undisciplined, or from a lack of striving. Shadow barely makes it because in spite of his disciplined striving, he was beaten and bruised from the journey. There's a distinct difference. And that, that's in light of where he says in Hebrews to strive, that you would enter that rest. He barely makes it in spite of the foolishness of chance and the whininess and complaining of sassy. Don't forget that. So part of the point here is don't be chance and don't be sassy. <laughs> be shadow. He ran full steam ahead into life's challenges with confidence. He ran with discipline and courage and self-control. He managed himself well so that he would have something left in the tank to give to others. He was firmly planted. And it's part of what I want to push forward today here that we see in Hebrews 5. Our perseverance is assured by the past and present active work of our King Priest Jesus. Let me say that again. Our perseverance is assured by the past and present active work of our king priest Jesus. 
It is the king-priest office of Christ that we must know and believe if we are going to persevere. The active past work and the active present work of our king-priest Jesus is both the why we will persevere and the how we will persevere. The first point, that's kind of the, the main thrust for today. That's a really long title, but my, my title is just Perseverance and a Priest. There you go. That's my title. Sounds like it should be a song from like a 70s rock band or something. First point, the high priestly office represents being brought back into fellowship with God. That's the longest of all my points, but there you have it. The high priestly office represents being brought back into fellowship with God. Look at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, I think when it comes to the high priestly office, about which there will be much said in the weeks ahead, and there'll be much said about this guy named Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, or however you pronounce him. There'll be much said, so I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna say some, but I won't say all there is to be said. But with the high priestly office, I just wanna start here. I think we have oftentimes a pathetic understanding of the high priestly office. I think when most of us think, quote, the priestly office, we think animal dead, God happy, done. That's kind of the end of our thinking. I think we bring the same thing in when we think about the priestly office of Christ. We think Jesus dead, God happy, done. The end of conversation. That's, That's our whole thought process from beginning to end. But the high priestly office represents, hear me, the entire process of being brought and being kept in fellowship with God. The entire, the entire, the priestly office represents the entire process of being brought and being kept in fellowship with God. Very briefly, in the Old Testament, that was the role of the priest and the high priest. The people didn't view him as a one and done on a particular day, although there were important days. But they viewed him as the guy who was going to help keep them in fellowship with God. To help keep the entire nation walking according to God. To keep them right with him. And if you will begin to grasp that, okay, so I'm going to try to help push that ball down the court. If you'll begin to grasp that, that that the priestly office of Christ was not a one and done. And you will better, and, you, and as you better understand the ongoing work of Christ's priestly office, you will live in the power and the assurance that it provides. And I think that's his point here. A more fuller, deeper understanding of the priestly ongoing work of Christ will provide the power and assurance that we need to live. Now, just in case some of you get, uh, just in case I lose some of you in the weeds ahead, Christ, let me say this, so you write this down. Christ doesn't continue to offer a sacrifice in an ongoing fashion like the Old Testament priest did. But, he continues to work to ensure our fellowship with God continues. So that portion of his priestly work does not stop. And there is not the only place, but probably the primary place of which your assurance of perseverance should rest. The priestly ongoing work Christ. Now we're going to get into the weeds. What was the purpose of this high priest 
role. I've already mentioned some of this. I'm going to break all this down, really. It's to act on behalf of man in relation to God. To represent mankind to God. And to work toward reconciliation with God for man. I really just said the same thing three different ways, if you didn't catch that. Here's what he's doing. He's dealing... The priest is dealing with the problem of sin on behalf of the people who've sinned. It's not much different than even the picture that you have before you today with your elders, your pastors, even your fellow followers of Christ are helping us deal with the problem of sin, helping us walk, dealing with the problem of sin. You see, the priest, though, doesn't just represent mankind and is not simply someone who offers up a sacrifice, but instead the entire office of high priest represents the process, the entire process of being brought back into fellowship with God and his work on our behalf to do so. And so when you hear high priest, I don't want you to... Your first and primary thought to be, from this moment going forward, don't want your first and primary thought to be some guy who offers a sacrifice. But instead, your first and primary thought should be the guy who brings us back into fellowship with God through his work on our behalf and his active work in us staying there. This whole process. So don't oversimplify the priestly work of Christ. If you oversimplify and relegate it only to the cross, then you will have an impotent faith. If you don't know what impotent means, you'll have a powerless and weak and pathetic faith. Okay? He doesn't just represent that. He represents the whole picture. He takes... The priest takes the perfect sacrifice, he prepares it, he prepares himself, thinking of the Old Testament priest here, then he walks into God's presence as our mediator, the sins are placed on the animal, and the priest communicates this to God and God's people and represents God's ongoing work amongst them, reminding them of their duties and what God requires and, and God's mercy and forgiveness. There's just this big, beautiful picture of the priest that we should bring into this passage as we think about the priestly work of Christ. Now, what's the process? Again, the process is simple. He offers sacrifices on behalf of a people for their sin. So his purpose is to act on behalf. What's the process? He's offering sacrifices. Why sacrifices? Because that's what's required for man's sin. It's death. Why death? Why is death a requirement for sin. Because we've sinned against a holy God. It requires an infinite payment. We say, well, why blood? Because blood represents life. Without blood, I don't know if you know this, but you're dead. Right? So blood is spilt. Death takes place in exchange for the sin. So they're offering sacrifices. Now, what are the qualifications? First, he must be a man. He must be a man, I think, gender-wise, in order to represent mankind. But he also must be a man, as in a human, because it's humans that stand condemned before God. The animals don't stand condemned. They've not sinned against God. Mankind has. And this man then becomes their mediator, the, the go-between. Another qualification that he's able to identify with them. Look at verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So this priest in the Old Testament is able to identify with the people because he himself as well struggles with sin. So he needs, he needs reconciliation with God as well. He identifies with them. Now the implication, particularly if you look back in chapter 4, if 
about Christ who was tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. The implication here in verse 3 is that Christ, that this in one sense is true of Christ, but not true of Christ. He is able to identify with us, but he is not, it's not true that he sins like us. That he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. More of that, not today, but down the road. This priest doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself, but the point of identification is what he's trying to make here. That he can identify. It's a qualification that the priest be able to identify with those whom he is mediating for. If you look at verse 2, I just read verse 3, but look at verse 2. He says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. You see, these priests in the Old Testament could deal gently because they were similar in their sins. But we also know from chapter 4 and what's being implied here in the immediate context is that Jesus is able to identify with us. Not because of the sin but because of the temptation to sin. And he was tempted. And it's really here where, like, I could go on the whole sermon that I just, the other one that I wrote, but I'm going to avoid it. But, but you, I, I think I want to address for a second the question of could Jesus have sinned? Because I, I think for, for many of us, we just, we just kind of write it off like, well, Jesus Jesus didn't sin because he was God, and so how does my high priest identify with me if he couldn't have sinned? So could Jesus have sinned? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, by his being and nature, he could have sinned. Now, without getting into a thousand caveats here and the sermon that I wanted to preach, he does so without a corrupted nature. So he would have been, when we're tempted, we're tempted by the flesh, the devil, or the world. Those are the three places. He would have been tempted from the other two, not from his own flesh, because he did not have a corrupted nature. The same thing was true of Adam and Eve. They were tempted not having a corrupted nature. They were tempted from the other two. And they chose sin, and obviously Jesus did not. So Jesus, by his nature, he could have sinned. And some people complain that they have a corrupt nature and didn't choose that for themselves. And so how could God condemn them? So let's say for you that you're Adam and you have no corrupt nature. I'm going to bet my life that you fall just like Adam. When tempted with the world, when tempted, you're going to fall. But in Christ's nature, again, this is the same. He could have sinned by nature. So where's the no come in? The no comes in by the will of God. God had sovereignly ordained that his son would succeed in his righteousness. It was his plan. He ensured its success. God decreed that his son in his humanity and all its limitations, weaknesses, and so on would successfully live the righteous life that you and I could not live. I'll give you another example that I heard someone else give. Think about Jesus' bones. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. So could Jesus' bones have been broken? Yes. By their nature, they could have been broken. They were breakable. Could they have been broken? No, because God decreed that they would not be broken. So could Jesus have sinned? Yes. By his nature, he could have. Was he going to sin? No, because God decreed it so. So if Jesus, by his nature, could have sinned, but didn't, then that means that as he faced those temptations, he felt the force of those temptations, yet by God's power, able to say no, 
And thus, he identifies with us. So yes, Jesus is able to identify with us in our struggles of our temptations. He knows it in his humanity. And in a bit, I'm going to talk about how he, he knows that in his humanity in perpetuity. He knows it in his humanity and an ongoing reality. He doesn't just forget that, but is reminded of that with each day that goes. Now, this priest was able to walk with the ignorant and the wayward. The ignorant and the wayward. Certainly, in this passage, this is true of all of, all of us. All of those who are believers, at times, we are ignorant and wayward. Now, I think this is, this is hearkening, particularly in the book of Hebrews, which is drawing on so much Old Testament thoughts here. I think this is, this is alluding to the idea of the kind of two Old Testament categories. The first Old Testament category being the ignorant and the weak versus the high-handed and openly rebellious people. So the ignorant and the weak, so the believers, that, but that are ignorant and weak versus those who are in high-handed, open rebellion. So the first category, ignorant and weak, I think that's the category he's talking about here. Believers who, despite their faith in Christ as Savior, still struggle with sin. That is all of us who confess Christ. That's the wayward and the ignorant I believe he is referring to in this passage. Sinning believers are forgiven, though through this ongoing work of Christ Jesus, I don't, I don't mean he is ongoing in his returning to the cross, but ongoing in walking out the process of forgiveness and restoration versus unrepentant, unbelieving sinners who have no one to bear for their sins except themselves. That's the distinction here. You have the ignorant and the wayward, Versus the high-handed rebellion. The people who are ignorant and wayward, yet believers. He is saying that we have a compassionate high priest who is there to walk with us. He's saying to us who are not in high-handed rebellion that we find a compassionate high priest who will gently lead us to God's grace with God's grace. So this guy who can identify with us, who are wayward and ignorant, we have a high priest who when faced with those same temptations, understands and identifies with us in that struggle. And he in his current office, is working on our behalf. Now, let me step aside for a second here and say, don't pigeonhole this gently lead us to God's grace. When it says he is, he is gentle and compassionate, and so don't pigeonhole what that gentleness looks like. The gentleness doesn't always look like your nursing mother. It doesn't always look like accommodation. If you seek to define this gentle leading of this high priest your way and you limit it, then you will miss it when that high priest is working on your behalf. Listen, a compassionate high priest here is not characterized as a mode in opposition to someone who is firm or blunt or is going to push you hard. His point is not to say that we don't have a high priest who, who never does that. What he's saying is we don't have a high priest who's going to snub his nose and say, you're on your own. That's his point. That we have a high priest that when we call out for help, his hand is there. That he's not going to snub us or push us to the side. So let's talk about Jesus the high priest a little more particularly. 
First of all, the human nature of Christ. The human nature of Christ. Why did Jesus become a man? Was it so that we could start a stupid ad campaign during football season entitled, He Gets Us? Or was it so that we could wear those bracelets, WWJD ones? Or maybe a little closer to home, did he come as a man so that we could have an inspirational example in how to treat the poor? Or did he come so that this high and mighty God could come experience what a terrible life we have? Listen, the main reason Jesus had to become a man was to fulfill his priestly role. He could not represent us if he were not one of us. He could not identify with us in our trials if he had not shared in those trials. Uh, You have Christ's humanity versus his divinity. And oftentimes we just kind of wash Jesus up. It's like, he's just all God. He is all God. He's also all man. But men, mankind owed God the debt, and in Christ the man, the debt is paid. It was Christ's divinity that made his blood infinitely valuable and able to uh, um, propitiate, there we go, It was Christ's divinity that made his blood infinitely valuable and able to propitiate God's wrath. So it was his manness that made him qualified to step in place for a man. It's his godness that made him able to propitiate or to absorb all of the punishment required. You see, if it were just purely a man, then he would be enduring that punishment for all of eternity. But that's how Christ could absorb it in a moment. And for all of us. So the human nature of Christ. He's able to identify with our weakness. Jesus, the high priest, identifies with our weakness. Now, let me ask you this question. Does this mean... I don't know if any of you have thought about this, but does this mean that God was insufficient in his knowledge of man's infirmities and struggles, and without Jesus, he would never know those things? I think this is a dangerous conclusion if that's where you land. I think it's dangerous. It says something about God that can't be true because he is all-knowing. It could also set you up, as many are, to put God against Jesus. Well, Jesus gets us. That's what the ad says, right? Thank goodness, because God doesn't. But instead, in the mind of God, he knows all sorrow and pain and weaknesses and struggles. I think you need to, put, you need to keep two things in mind as we think about Christ identifying with us in our weakness and coming, and he is able to relate with us. The first thing is this, Christ comes as a man with veiled omniscience. I don't want to get too technical here, but, but, but Christ comes, he has all of his omniscience. He knows everything, but there's a veil on it. There's a, there's a covering on it. He doesn't take it off, it's still there, but it's covered Meaning he knows, his, all of his knowing is there. He's still 100% divine. But next week, this is important because next week we're going to talk about how he learns obedience through suffering. You see, listen, the, the personhood of Jesus in his humanity did not come complete with everything he would eventually have as a man when he dies. And I know for some of us, we're like, wow. How do I swallow that? It's all right. Keep chewing. The personhood of Jesus in his humanity did not come complete with everything he would eventually have as a man when he died. Listen, I'm not denying his divinity. I'm not denying his moral sufficiency. But he had things to learn, things to prove himself through. Again, some of this is setting it up for next week. 
But what we're talking about is identifying with our weaknesses. For example, Jesus was born without this sinful, corrupt nature. But he was not born with proven righteousness. He hadn't done that yet. He had to spend a lifetime proving his righteousness, living the righteous life. He had to earn that. He, another example, he was not born with the proof of, proof of perseverance. Right? He hadn't done that yet. He had to prove that. So that's where he is walking this life and able to identify with us because he had to earn that righteousness too. He wasn't just born with that. Second, so he, was, he, was, he comes as a man with veiled omniscience. Two, Jesus continues in that humanity today. And so he keeps, this is the thing, I, I think might take you a bit to chew on. He keeps in his humanity to this day the knowledge he learned in his incarnation, i.e., the suffering, the weakness, the troubles, as he continues his work as our high priest. And I hope, I hope you can connect those dots, because that's, I think that gives power if you understand that he brings that into his current active work, the things that he learned as a man, where his omniscience is veiled. And so Jesus then and now continues to work within the frame of his humanity, having learned and experienced all of these things, our weaknesses, our struggles, our pains, yet he does so without sin. And because he does so without sin, he is able to show us compassion. Now let me help you with, we're just, we'll push this ball a little bit further. So let's talk about showing compassion. How does our high priest show us compassion? So we talked about how he can identify with us. But here's what compassion means in general. It means to reasonably bear with. Okay? So that when it says compassion, he's not saying empathy in the same way we like to understand empathy today. He's saying to reasonably bear with. He will reasonably bear with you and I. It doesn't mean he will let us rule or have our way or sit there and pout. It doesn't mean he'll just come and just listen to us, right? Listen, he isn't able to show us compassion, listen to me, simply because he experiences our struggles. There's two parts to this equation. He's able to show us compassion because he experienced our struggles and he did so without sin. That's the second part of the equation. Because he experienced our struggles, and he did so without sin, therefore he's able to show us compassion. Now here's why this is important, why I'm making such a big point with this. We live in a world right now that says, you cannot show me compassion until you can relate to all the layers of trauma that I've experienced. Side note, that's just a power move, right? Because right now it pays to be the biggest victim in the room. There's a Shine Down song that says, if victimhood is currency, then you won't starve. We live in a world right now that says, if you've not been in all of my shoes, walked all of my steps at the same pace, at the same temperature, with the same skin color, same biology between the legs, and don't forget the way I self-identify then who are you to even begin to think you know what's compassionate for me other than just let me have what I want? It's just a license to cancel the voice of the one speaking, and it's also just absolute nonsense. Maybe a little closer to home. You know, my elders or my DNA leaders, they just don't understand my circumstance. And until they show me compassion, I'm just going to justify not listening to them. 
And here's the truth. If that's your standard, then your, your theology is terrible. Why? Because no one can speak to you. You can just cancel them whenever you want, whenever it's convenient. But it's terrible theologically because that's not what makes it possible for Christ to show us compassion. That's half of the equation. Half of the equation is, is his measure of being able to identify with us. The other half of the equation is the fact that he did so sinlessly. Here's the reality for us. Our sins, when it comes to showing compassion, tend to do one of two things. Our sins usually make us more patient and severe with regard to the sins of others. Why? Oftentimes, we're blind to our own peculiar sins, and we're shocked with another's sins. Or we ride hard on the same sin that we struggle with, that we see in others, as a way of drawing attention away from our sin, or as a way of making ourselves feel better. Or two, sometimes, we're, because of our sin, when it comes to compassion, it makes us too accommodating to other people's sins. Our compassion looks more like accommodation. Why? Because we want to pass with our sins. Because we want accommodation with our sins. So we give other people a pass on theirs. But Jesus suffered our weakness, our temptations, our infirmities, yet did so without sin. And with regard to the sinner, Jesus, someone said, by virtue of his perfect holiness, is the most merciful, passionate, compassionate, and considerate judge. You see, he, because he's without sin, can see through the fog of our mess. And he can objectively decide what is compassionate and good for us as we make work through our own struggles, as we fight for perseverance. A.W. Pink said this, Jesus, he loved them, watched over them with unwearied patience, prayed for them that their faith fail not, and reminded them the spirit was willing, but the flesh is weak. He remembers also his own sinless weakness. He knows what constant thought, meditation, listen, listen to these words. He knows, Jesus knows what constant thought, meditation, and prayer are needed to overcome Satan and to be faithful to God. He knows what it is for the soul to be sorrowful and overwhelmed and what it is to be refreshed by the sunshine of divine favor and to rejoice in the Spirit. We may come into Him expecting full, tender, deep sympathy and compassion. Because He did it. Yet he did it without sin. Now listen, he knows what's needed for you to glorify God and persevering through whatever the moment is. Turn there. Turn to him. Turn to his words. Turn to his body, his church, who are speaking, you, speaking to you those words. Now, let's not miss... Step away from the compassion thing for a second. Actually, for, for a while. Here's an implication that I don't want you to miss in this passage. Jesus is performing a work. The narrative today, Jesus was this gentle, passive, quiet little lamb with all of his feminine characteristics, led to a slaughter, and therefore, we just need to emulate that. But there's a danger when we disconnect the idea that Christ was executing his priestly office at the cross, and we relegate that to just some passive letting something happen. When you, when, if you, when you think back about the cross and that priestly work, if you think that in terms of Jesus is just letting this happen to him, he's just passively sitting by, then you will walk with the priest 
who just passively sits by. But his point here, at least the implication, is that the priest was always performing a work. He was always doing something. It's possible to say, great, Jesus died for me. Now let me go live and forget the full picture of his priestly role. Listen, the mere fact that Christ was acting upon his priestly duties tells us that he was anything but a willing victim passively enduring the stroke of divine judgment. Let me quote for you someone. Jesus was there performing a work, nor did he cease until he cried in triumph, it is finished. What is finished? All the things that are going to happen to me, oh my goodness, it's all finished. Is that what Jesus was saying? No, he's saying, my work is finished. That's what he's saying. Let me go on, that wasn't part of the quote, let me keep going. He loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5. He laid down his life for the sheep, John 10, which is the predicate of an active agent. He poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah 53. He dismissed his spirit, John 19. Hell's utmost force and fury gathered against him, heaven's sword devouring him, and heaven's God forsaking him. But what is the glory of the cross if it be not this, that with such action conspiring to subdue his action, his action outlasted and outlived them all. And he did not die subdued and overborne in the dying. He did not die till he gave himself in death. That active priest is the one who's at work now. And if you have an impotent man priest going to a cross, you will walk with an impotent priest now. Here's what you should take away. The priest was a conqueror and Jesus' role both on the cross and still this day is an active warrior on behalf of his people. For the glory of God. Next, Jesus was appointed as high priest. He was appointed, italics, on the appointed. Maybe you've heard it said, well, God is this big cosmic bully. You know, the Old Testament God, this big cosmic bully. The meanie type, you know. The one wanting to just squash everyone like a bug, like the toddler and an ant. And then all of a sudden, God said, or Jesus says, oh, God, please don't do that. Father, please don't do that. I'll go, and I'll fix everything. Just be, be, be patient while I go to the earth. That's a, that's a cool story. Not, not quite the one from the Bible, though. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Talk about this priest. He says, and no one takes this honor for himself. Oh, What? but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So you're telling me, actually, the, the way that story is, exact, is, is not. It, it doesn't go, God is this cosmic bully that, that Jesus said, hey, hang on a second, I'll go be the, the nursing mother and go take care of all these people and bring them back. God appoints Jesus to go. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, this is God speaking, by the way, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I don't think, listen, I don't think it was Jesus who begged God to let him go to earth. God appointed Jesus to go to earth. So let's talk about what's this, what does that appointment mean? How important is the appointing aspect of this, of this thing? The first thing is this idea of a king-priest. So I, I want you to write down king-priest. 
Now, he's quoting, at this point in Hebrews, he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7, and he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. I'm not going to read both of those. But the first thing is, he's saying, you are my son. So he's saying of this priest and this appointment of Jesus that you're my son. Now, his point here is not to emphasize that he is simply a son. Right? We've, we've seen this picture being painted in Hebrews thus far. The point is not just you're my son, but you're the heir of all things. Now, wh- what's the point of that? Is that you're the king. That you're the enthroned king. You're the inheritor. You get it all. It's all yours. You're the king. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. This is the the psalm he's quoting with the two verses that follow. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's he referring to? Is he just talking about a son? He's talking about his king son. And a king has what? Again, go back to that psalm. The nations will be your heritage, your heritage, the earth be your possession. You shall have the power to break them with the rod of iron. You have the power as the king to dash them into pieces. Now, let me step back for a second. He's painting this picture of this priest for us, and he goes to that psalm to help us understand this priest. Now, does that sound like the priest that you have pictured in your head? You know, the weak, pansy, sit by his side, do his own thing kind of priest? Does that sound like some soft, passive? This is a priest with power and authority and might. Next, let's talk about Melchizedek. Again, there'll be a lot more ink spilled on Melchizedek in the weeks ahead. This is our introduction to him in the book of Hebrews. Right? Just, just a brief, let me catch us up to Melchizedek here. He appears first in Genesis 14 with Abraham. There, he's described as the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. I think that's very fascinating. He's not just described as a priest, but when we're first introduced, we, are, we understand his kingliness too. And the two things that the author of Hebrews, when he's beginning all of this language about priests, the two things he chooses to quote from and refer to in the Old Testament have this coloration of king. It has this tonal quality of king. This, this tonal quality of power and sovereignty that is being coupled as he's painting the picture of priest. What do we typically think of a priest? Just this guy just kind of passively you who know, does and reminds you who God is and, and offers up a sacrifice. You know, just want to make sure God stays happy. And What's this picture? This picture is not that. It's a powerful, active, king, priest, Continuing, Abraham experiences victory over the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zebulun, and so on. And then he goes and offers a sacrifice to this priest king called Melchizedek. Now, we know this priest king is a foreshadow of Christ. Because that's what Hebrews uses. Hebrews is going to use Melchizedek many times as we walk through the book of Hebrews. So when you hear Melchizedek, you shouldn't just think priest, but you should think king priest. You should think a priest with power. A thousand years after Abraham, Melchizedek resurfaces in Psalm 110, which is the psalm that's being quoted here in Hebrews. And Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and it's, it's talking about Christ being enthroned. Let me read part of that for you. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what he's quoting here in Hebrews. 
then we don't see Melchizedek's name again until the book of Hebrews. Now, here's the point. I've already alluded to this because I can't help myself. As important as the priesthood of Christ is in the book of Hebrews, just under the surface is the emphasis that he is the king priest. Hear this. Here's, here's part of his point. Jesus, as priest, listen, this is such good news to you and I, doesn't just have good intentions as priest, but he has the authority and the power to do something about it. Do you hear me? He doesn't just have good intentions, but he has the power and the authority as our priest to do something about it. His compassion is not just shown to us in sentimental emojis. But it comes to us in power and timeliness. He can do something about it. He doesn't just look at us and go, oh, you know, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You'll make it. You're good. Just hang on there. But he has the resources to send for you to make it. He has the power. He knows the words what to say, and he can say them. He can arrange the circumstances to accomplish it. He doesn't say something without the ability to do something about it. And he doesn't say something without the subsequent action of doing something about it. He isn't, as Pastor Jeff says, all hat and no cattle. He is hat and cattle both. He's appointed. He's king priest, and he's appointed Jesus was willing, but it was the Father that appointed him to come. What does that appointing mean? It means a couple of things, but the one I'm going to emphasize here is it means he's approved, not just qualified. You see, someone can be qualified and not appointed, which means he's not sufficient. If, if, if for the task, you have to be both qualified and appointed to the task. It's the same thing with eldership. We want a church full of qualified men. But you're not an elder unless you've been appointed. So with Christ, if he had not been appointed, then it doesn't matter how, much he, how righteous he was. It's not God's plan. And he wasn't the man for the job. It would have been someone else. But he was appointed. If he's only qualified, and yet it's not God's plan, then his sacrifice would have been unacceptable. God accepts Christ's intercession on our behalf because he appointed him to this very work. You know the big implication of that is? That means God is willing and has accepted his work. Because he appointed him to the task. God is saying, yes, I'll take that. Last main thought. Perseverance and a priest. Perseverance and a priest. All of this has tremendous impact on our assurance of salvation. This whole idea of this king priest. We've had all this talk thus far in, this, in the book of Hebrews about Israel and the desert and how they've fallen to disobedience and unbelief and ultimately rebellion. And I think a, a mature Christian 
He's going to stop asking the question, I don't know if I, when was that date that I got saved? And he's probably going to ask more the question, how am I going to persevere through my own temptations? How will I not fall like the Israel generation fell? Less Less, God, just help me to make it through this. And more, God, please help my faith to persevere for your glory. We've already seen thus far that the scriptures tell us that, yes, we must strive. It's not earning our salvation, but living in light of our salvation, working that salvation out, and that we must persevere, persevere. Strive and striving we must. That's why every decision we make is of eternal importance. Things like what church you choose or where you, where you live or what influences you read outside of the Bible or what friends you gather with or what excuses you let take your emotions on a ride or what bitterness you let sit in. I mean, just, just a few examples of every decision is going to have eternal consequences. But if there is assurance to be had in perseverance, it is to be had in the appointment of Jesus Christ as our high priest. It is his work. He, after atoning for our sins, now sits on the throne in the holy throne room of heaven. That's where, listen, that's, insert resurrection right here. And ascension. That's where this Melchizedek, king, priest, working on our behalf, powerful priest, resurrection to the throne, the throne room of God. On the throne doesn't just sit a king, but sits a priest who, has, who is also king. And this king doesn't just sit there. He is our king priest. He sends us more than good vibes, sentimentalism, and emojis. He's there actively working on our behalf. That's what I, I just I, I want you to walk away. If there's anything I want you to walk away believing today, is that he actively is sitting on the throne, working on behalf of his Father's glory and our good, and he does so with all the power of the king of the universe. He knows how frail your emotions are. He knows what hunger does to your afternoons. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one, what it's like to be betrayed. He knows the limitations that come when you don't sleep well. He knows that the body has to be taken care of. He knows our plights. He knows how strong the temptations are of the devil and of the world. And yet he lived through it all without sin. And it is him who is interceding with the Father on our behalf. It is him who is sending you and I resources to bolster our faith. It is him who is aligning the cosmos to accomplish his kingdom through your hands. And he has all the power and resources to do something about it because he is king. Listen, you and I can walk with confidence and boldness trusting that we will persevere. We can walk with confidence and boldness, conquering the next area of land, subduing the next thing out of order for the king because our king priest is actively sitting on his throne, actively working on our behalf and actively building his kingdom. He is there actively working to persevere your faith. If you have genuine faith in the Lord, then that priest has all the resources and is actively working to persevere your faith. Wake up, the next time you're like, you're like shaken about your faith, ask yourself, do you believe that the king priest is actively working to persevere your faith? Ask it. And if not, Ask God for the faith to believe it.
He has all the resources. And listen, he can, as I was reminded during a time of depression in my own life a number of years ago, I was reminded by John Piper, said the Lord, and these aren't exactly his words, but that king priest can see and hold your faith even when you can't. He is there actively working. Now that's real assurance. That's perseverance and a priest. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we do not deserve this king priest. But yet, because you first loved us, you chose to send your son to identify with us to, to work through the same struggles that, that we work through, to be tempted by the world, to be tempted by Satan, and yet to do it by your power and your sovereign decree without sinning. So that he could do two things, so that he could sit in our place and atone for our sin. And... He could actively work on our behalf now, showing us compassion, sending us the resources that we need. So, Father, thank you. And thank you that you have made him the heir of all things. That you sent him in the weaknesses of a man, yet you sovereignly decreed that he would succeed so that he was worthy to inherit the nations. Now, he would inherit all of the resources needed to persevere his people. And Father, thank you that you've done this because you loved us. You've done this for your glory. I'm thankful that loving us is a part of what brings you glory. Father, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.